Good morning again, church. Everybody ready to get in the Word of God? Uh, Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. We are going to look at the subject of giving this morning. Once again, the doors have already been locked. Uh, No, um, (laughs) if, if you hadn't noticed, the last three weeks we have preached on marriage, joy, and giving. And so uh, there are times where, you know, you, don't ex- you, you should expect the enemy to attack and you should expect um, some adversity when you uh, tackle subjects that the enemy hates and yet sometimes it, it still comes. And so I am always thankful when I approach uh, topics like this or the Word of God that deals with subjects like this that I know that there's a church that prays for its pastor. And so thank you. Uh, all and it's reciprocated as I, I pray for you all as well considering um, the word of God. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we're going to read verses 6 through 15 but really cover a lot of text from chapter 8 and chapter 9. So if you'd do me the honor of standing as we read the word of God together acknowledging that God himself has spoken to us directly through his word and that is a, a wondrous wonderful acknowledgement uh, as we sit and consider that the God of the universe would speak to his people. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting verse 6. Here's what the text says. Paul's writing, he says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Father, we do thank you as we consider this wondrous word of yours this morning. Lord, we know that giving is a, is a touchy subject for many in the life of the church, and yet, uh, Lord, you speak on giving, you speak on the idolatry of money um, quite often in the scriptures. And so, Father, us being a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, when we come to subjects like this, uh, Lord, help us acknowledge that this was near and dear to your heart, uh, and the instruction given uh, to us from your word is ultimately all for our good and your glory. We trust that, we know that in the name of Jesus, we pray that, amen. And amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as I've said, let's be honest, right? Preaching on giving is a sermon we probably expect to hear at least once a year. Um, It is a sermon 
that, to be frank, not a lot of preachers like to preach and not a lot of congregants enjoy to hear. And I noticed that, uh, but we're doing so this morning not necessarily because of some failure in our midst, but because giving is a means of grace. You know, we don't ever do this with all the other means of grace, with the Word of God, with prayer, with, with the Lord's Supper, with baptism. We don't look there, look at these subjects and say, well, I just wish so-and-so would stop preaching on the Word of God, or preaching on prayer, or preaching on, on the Lord's Supper, and so on and so forth. But with giving, it's always a touchy subject. And I wondered why that is. Well, many will say, well, it's because the church, and the quote-unquote church, has been irresponsible with funds in the past, are you telling me that there's been churches that have not been irresponsible with the word of God or prayer or baptism and the Lord's Supper? So why is it that we fear and struggle so much with the understanding the topic of preaching on giving? Well, it's because for many of us, there is no greater idol in our lives than money. Let's be honest here, as I've had to be honest in my own life this week. This is a touchy subject because we wrestle with it. And so friends, this morning, we have to understand the big idea of this passage and the big idea of this topic, and that is this. The bottom line of all I'm going to say is our giving matters. That's the big idea of our text here this morning. Our giving matters. And we're going to look at two reasons today why our giving matters. And I hope you brought something to write with because we got a lot of notes to take today. Because before we just jump into the reasons as to why our giving matters, I think there are some things we need to say up front. Just so we're all on the same page as to what exactly I mean when I use the term giving. Every time I use the word giving, I am referring to giving with these four qualifications to it, okay? Write this down if you got time to. The first is I'm referring to Christian giving. When I refer to giving today through the text, through this passage, through theological conversations, I'm referring to Christian giving. That is the generous, generous sharing of financial resources with others because of God's grace to us. The generous sharing of our financial resources with others because of God's grace to us. I'm not referring just broadly to generosity as, as a broad term, because some non-believers are very generous, aren't they? In fact, some of them put us to shame in terms of generosity, but we're not referring to non-Christian giving this morning, because those who don't know Christ haven't first given themselves to the Lord and then to the act of giving by grace. So the first is I'm referring to Christian giving. The second qualification in the context of our text in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is this giving here I'm referring to was given for a specific service and ministry. I want to make that clear in our context here. The term Paul uses actually in verse 12 of chapter 9 is actually the same term service that we get our word deacon from. The idea here is they had a service or an active ministry for saints that were in need at the time. The saints had a lack or need and it's being supplied by the generosity of others who have the resources to help. This act of service is a very specific group in this context of Jewish Christians residing in and around Jerusalem. 
So, so I'm going to address our giving generally by looking at Paul's specific instruction to Corinth in regards to a very specific giving project in ministry. But the principles here still supply. Or they still apply. This context is specific. And remember that. The third qualification is this. The giving we're referring to this morning is primarily directed to the body of Christ. I think if there's one qualification we're prone to misunderstand, it's, it's this one right here. It, let's take our text as an example of what the New Testament is teaching on a broad scope. I see a collection is being taken up for the needy brothers and sisters in Christ at Jerusalem. So there's this collection taken up by the churches in Macedonia and Achaia and other churches. It, churches. It's being brought to Jerusalem in order to supply the things that are lacking there. In chapter 9, verse 12, Paul explains that this service is fully supplying the needs of the saints. That is, who are the saints? Those who belong to God in Christ, right? And here's my point in showing you all of this. Is that surely there were other poor people and poor, uh, uh, even church members around Macedonia and Achaia and Asia Minor. There were poor people all around the world at this time. Yet, this giving that Paul is commending the Macedonians for and exhorting the Corinthians to participate in, it's directed toward the body of Christ. And we see this all over the New Testament. That's the primary focus of the giving of God's people. Now, does that mean that it's wrong to give to other poor people outside of the church and that we shouldn't ought to do that? No. But primarily in the Bible, the, the, the utmost importance is the focus is on giving first and foremost to the people of God, to the body of Christ, either in the form of supporting the gospel ministry or supplying the needs of the saints. It's not to diminish the needs that all people have in this world. But as we read in Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, let us do good to all people, Paul says, but who especially? To those who are of the household of the faith. There's a priority here that's given and it's given to our brothers and sisters in Christ. So if this is the case, then we should as a church strive to be generous to all people, yes, but we must recognize and respond to the body of Christ, which is our first and greatest responsibility. So our Christian giving should be primarily directed toward the body of Christ, to the gospel ministry and supplying the needs of our fellow brothers, sisters in Christ. Finally, one more qualification, then we'll dive into the text. Giving, as it's addressed in the scriptures, is primarily corporate giving. Giving, as it's addressed in the scriptures, this, we're referring to corporate giving. And this shouldn't surprise us, as the whole life of the Christian is intimately and inseparably bound up with the life of the body of Christ. It is worth noting that who Paul is writing here to is a, is a local church. That's his audience. He's writing to the local church at Corinth, a concrete expression of that universal body by which we are all partakers. Paul is calling this particular local church together 
corporately to respond to his exhortation of giving. He's not just calling Bob, Jim, and Lucy, but the church and Corinth together. He's not just saying, hey, those of you who really have money, you're the only ones I need to give. No, he's saying the saints, the local church, the corporate body of Christ, this exhortation is to you. Now listen, to be sure, Paul says here in 1 Corinthians, actually in chapter 16, verse 2, he says on the first day of every week, Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. Sure, there is an individual aspect to this, but the giving here is in the context of the local church. So the priority goes to the corporate context of our Christian giving. It's all of us. And and this is really true of the Christian life. We are no longer autonomous, detached rebels doing what's right in our own eyes. We belong to the body of Christ. Remember our sermon series not too long ago, right? We belong to the body of Christ. And as members of that body, part of that family, part of that holy fellowship in Christ, we seek together to do our Father's will on earth as it is in heaven. And this is best accomplished when our giving is in the context of the local church. So this morning, we're not simply referring to being generous. We're referring to Christian giving. And that's the giving by grace and a means of grace that produces the praise of God. That's our focus and emphasis. So I wanted to list those qualifiers for you. But now it's time to jump in. Again, there are two primary reasons why our giving matters, church family. And the first is this. Our giving is evidence of God's grace. The first reason why our giving matters is because it's evidence of God's grace. We're going to look at this with several headings here, several reasons for this. In our passage, we're going to go a little bit broader than just chapter 9 as well. We're going to look in chapter 8. The first thing we see, this first heading here of the fact that our giving matters because this is an evidence of God's grace is because giving, first of all, is the result of God's grace. Giving is a result of God's grace. So if you've experienced God's grace, then the natural result is your generosity. Paul says this clearly in actually 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. What's the result of that grace of God? That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So Paul wants the Christians in Corinth to know about God's grace that that they experienced that resulted in this generous giving of the Macedonians. In fact, he says, in their great poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality, united with that joy together. This isn't the first time Paul's committed a church like this. In fact, the church of Philippi is likely a representative of those Macedonian churches. And we catch another glimpse and insight in what a generous spirit looks like in the life of a local church in Philippians chapter 4, verses 16 through 20. Paul writes there, he says, For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. 
But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. And I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, who you have sent a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, he's writing to a church here in Macedonia. He's telling the church in Corinth now that's in a different area. You should see what happened in Macedonia. This wasn't the rich church. This wasn't the church with all the high-tech gurus and, and lights and so on. They didn't have it all together. They had actually deep poverty, but in the midst of that, tied to their joy, they gave an overflowing gift to those who were in need. And that's all as a result of God's grace. The grace of God is at work in marvelous ways, causing even those who are in the midst of deep poverty mingled with joy, causing them to overflow with liberality, generosity to those in need. Their giving was a result of God's grace. God had worked in them to produce sincere concern and sincere generosity. His presence was working in them and through them to bring about transformation and sanctification. This emphasis of giving as a result of God's grace is also seen in the recipient of the thanksgiving as well. Notice this. In his letter to Philippians, Paul, Paul doesn't, even, he doesn't even thank the Philippians. We might look at this and see this as, as kind of rude. We read that. If, if we're writing a letter, that's exactly what we do. You would write a letter and say, thank you for that gift that, that you gave. And, and though, listen, he is certainly commending them and encouraged them. You'll find no thank you for that. He doesn't even say, hey, I really can't thank you enough, church at Philippi, church at Macedonia. You're very kind. How can I ever repay you? He said, God accepts your sacrifice. He says, God will supply all your needs in Christ. He says, God alone be the glory even for your giving. We see the same thing in our text. What is going to be the result of the Corinthians giving? It's that the saints in Jerusalem will send thank you cards and be very grateful for their generosity? No, what will happen? It will produce in them a thanksgiving to God. Because friends, where did the gifts come from? Well, they came from Corinth. In, in a way, yes. But it's actually just evidence of God's grace at work in their midst, causing them to give generously. So who do you thank? Is it wrong then to thank someone for giving a gift or donation to you? No, not at all. But first and foremost, you thank God. Not only the giver of gifts, the one who all resources belong to, but also the one who has worked out his grace in their midst that gave them that desire to give. So it stands to reason that since giving is a result of God's grace, which is clearly seen, according to these texts, that giving is evidence of God's grace. We also see, secondly, how giving is the reflection of Christ's work of grace. Giving is the reflection of Christ's work of grace. Specifically, his self-giving to secure God's grace. I want you to think about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 8 and 9. Some very famous text here, but some really wonderful text here. Paul says, in the same context here, he says, I'm not speaking this as a command. In other words, he's not commanding them even to give. He says, but as proving through the earnestness of others, the sincerity of your love also. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It's a beautiful text. See, Paul, he's encouraging the Corinthians to excel in this act of grace, not as a response to a command, for that would not be an act of grace. Instead of begrudging obedience, okay, Paul, you've hounded us enough, I'll give. Instead of begrudging obedience to the bold command of the Apostle Paul, their giving instead should be compelled by genuine love and self-sacrifice for the needs of the saints. That genuine love Paul had already referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, where he says, For the love of Christ controls us. We could meditate on that for just a second. That's beautiful. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So Paul says to the Corinthians, listen, I'm I'm not commanding you to do this. But this is to prove your genuine love, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is that grace he's referring to? We know it, right? That free favor that is now yours because of the work of Christ, that that the power, the presence, and the blessings of God the Father is yours because of the sacrifice of Christ, who had all things, who is infinitely and eternally rich, but stepped out of heaven, humbled himself, made himself poor so that you and I might be rich in him. The Corinthians had come to know the divine favor and power of God, the grace of God. The Corinthians know and Paul has reminded them that the Lord Jesus Christ, remember, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Paul says, listen, giving, when it's Christian giving, it's a reflection of Christ's own gift. It's a reflection of Christ's own generosity. He became poor to make us rich. Friends, the only, one, the only way anyone comes to know the love of Christ is by grace. So giving, therefore, must be an evidence of grace, as it's a reflection of God's generosity. There's another, and it's closely related to the last one we see. Third heading under this first reason of why our giving matters, because this is evidence of God's grace, is that giving is a response to the gospel of grace. Giving is a response to the gospel of grace. Because listen, it it says this in, in chapter 9, verse 13. Obedience flows from this, and then the result of the gospel of grace will be giving. In a response to what God has done to us, we will respond with giving. Verse 13 of chapter 9 says this. Because of the proof given by this ministry... They will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. See, it is obedience that flows from and is in keeping with the gospel. Their giving was obedience not to Paul's command, but Paul's gospel. So just as giving reflects Christ's self-giving love, it is also the necessary response to the good news of God's free gift of salvation. Think about this. If you were given a gift, 
Not that you would ever be, a gift you would never be able to repay. You might not ever try to repay that gift. But it, would, it should stir in you a heart towards generosity to that, that giver of that gift, shouldn't it? How selfish would it be of you to receive a gift such as, I don't know, eternal life. And then have a heart of coldness toward others when it comes to generosity. Friends, it is a natural result of the gospel. It's a natural response to the gospel. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful when you see it. it's a necessary response. And don't miss this. If it's obedience to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to respond in generosity, then not responding in generosity would be disobedience. So, so where there is faithful Christian giving... There is evidence of God's grace at work because giving is a result of God's grace. It's a reflection of Christ's work and it is the necessary response to the gospel. So friends, right there we have to consider whether or not we've actually ever experienced God's grace. Because if we've never had a, a motive or desire or longing to have a generous heart in response to the gospel of grace as evidence of the gospel of grace, then it may be evidence that we've never had the gospel of grace. Maybe evidence that we don't even belong to him. Friends, you want to know why our giving matters. It giving matters just the same way our love matters, our joy matters, our peace matters because it's evidence that we belong to Jesus. So for those of you who have no desire to give generously to the furtherance of the kingdom of God or for the need of the saints, then friends, you need to ask yourself, what evidence do I have that I am a Christian? It's that serious. That's the first reason why our giving matters. second reason why our giving matters is because giving is a means of God's grace. It's not only the evidence of God's grace, it's also the means of God's grace. And we're going to look at this uh, point by looking at several different relationships here. And the first one is one that uh, is a little bit tricky. It's one of those things that might sound heretical as we say it, but hold on, okay? We're going to clarify what it actually means. The first relationship uh, as we look at giving as a means of God's grace uh, is there's a relationship between our giving and our getting. See what I mean? It sounds heretical, right? That's not... Just, just hold on. Don't get your pitchforks out yet, all right? There's a relationship between our giving and our getting. And this is in the text, isn't it? It may sound contradictory, some of the things we believe, but I encourage you to listen. Look at verse 6 of chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. This is what Paul says. He says it best. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Hmm. Point's pretty straightforward here, isn't it? How you sow, how you put in, influences how you reap. How you sow influences how you reap. And it makes sense. And the analogy really can't be improved upon here. We get the picture. Lesser sowing, lesser reaping. Greater sowing, greater reaping. The contrast between those two words here, sparingly and bountifully. 
The latter word, bountifully, it's the opposite of something that's been exacted from someone. It's the opposite of, as Paul goes on to say in verse 7, of a gift given grudgingly or under compulsion. So this becomes absolutely explicit in the next verse. What Paul is promoting is not just generosity, but generosity born out of a sincere concern and love for the recipient. And even more so, a response of sincere love and concern for the one who's already given all things to us in Christ. It is a willing, it is a free, it is gracious giving. This is the attitude we ought to have. Whatever else might be said, this much from the text is really clear. There is an inviolable relationship between our giving and our getting. Our sowing impacts our reaping. That's what Paul just said, and you can't neuter that. Whatever the exact nature of the connection, there is without any reasonable doubt a connection between the two, sowing or reaping. And listen, this isn't Paul's invention, by the way. Just one example, in Proverbs chapter 11, verses 24 through 25, uh, the great wisdom writer said, There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there's one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in one. The generous man will be prosperous, and the one who waters will himself be watered. In fact, Paul used a similar expression, what Brother Travis read out of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. That's in the context of giving. Okay, so let's... Ask the question, is this prosperity gospel? No. In fact, there is no hint of the prosperity gospel here whatsoever. None. Look at chapter 9, verse 8. Sowing generously, listen to me, sowing generously does not guarantee goods, but grace. Sowing generously does not guarantee goods, but grace. Not cars and cash, but divine favor and power at work in you, empowering you for every good deed. Always. Look at verse 8. Chapter 9, verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. See, the whole direction of prosperity theology is contrary to what Paul's saying here. The seed that is sown is not the same as the fruit that is harvested. See, in prosperity theology, you sow money to reap what? Money. More money in all its various forms. In other words, you sow seed to reap seed. But that's not Paul's analogy here. He says you sow seed to reap something entirely different. Fruit. (laughs) He specifically says what that fruit is. It's the fruit of righteousness. That's what you reap, friends. Righteousness. Not cars, not cash, not planes, but righteousness. Whereas Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 verse 8, But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Friends, eternal life is qualitatively different than your best life now. You know what this is? This is storing up treasure in heaven and not on earth. This is very different than the prosperity theology. This is losing your life so that you might find it. Or in the words of the great Jim Elliott, this is sowing what you cannot keep in order to gain what you cannot lose. 
Even if our Father, by the way, does increase our material blessings, which he is certainly able to do so, you know what the result of that is? Greater generosity. (laughs) Certainly not the gratification of the flesh. So friends, there there is not even a whiff of the prosperity gospel here. Yet as often is the case, the false teachers who propagate that heresy, they actually use an element of that truth. Because there is a reaping and sowing. That relationship is real. How we use the resources the Lord gives us, sowing them sparingly or bountifully, is directly related to how we reap. But what's promised here is not material blessing. What's promised instead is far greater. It's grace and righteousness. That's what we reap. We reap grace and righteousness. And listen, we have to understand this because we're we're talking about lesser or greater amount. We're obviously thinking in terms here of sanctification, that is our spiritual growth, and not justification, which means our status with God. Right? Your sowing and reaping doesn't mean you sow in work salvation and because you've sowed in work salvation, you reap actual salvation. That's not the case whatsoever. It's now that your status has not been changed, that you've been declared righteous because of God's grace and salvation. Now, you and I are on the same track. We are all growing to be more and more like Christ, right? And in that sense, when we require much grace to be like Christ, right? When we require so much grace to be like Christ, what you give in that, you will sow in grace and righteousness. What you give in generosity, you will sow in abounding grace that will make you more and more like our Savior. There's no adding to the positional reality here of us being in Christ. We've been declared righteous in the sight of God only because of the gift of Christ and what he did and his perfect life, his atoning death. But it's also true, friends, that we are being transformed into the image of our Father, the image of the Son. His righteousness is not only imputed to us, but it's communicated to us. It wasn't just accredited to our account. It's also being molded and shaped in us in such a way that we are being transformed more and more into his image. That's called sanctification. It's one of the primary things we are to be about in his church, becoming more and more like our master. Now listen, this of course only reaches its completion at the return of Christ or when we go be with him, but we actually should expect to be transformed. So let me ask you, do you think you're more like Christ this year than you were last year? Do you expect to be more like Christ next year than you are this year? More tomorrow than today? Friends, that's the Christian life. It's growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So even now this morning, in fact, in this very moment, we are reaping and sowing as you sit and listen to the word of God. Some will sow sparingly and reap sparingly. Some will sow bountifully and reap bountifully. All of this, by the way, is by grace. Our growing, our sanctification, all of it is the result of God's saving grace. So that's the first relationship, the relationship between giving and getting. Second, I want us to examine the relationship between the head and the heart. Let's look secondly at the relationship of the head and the heart. And I know this is a, this is a lot of stuff, but you know, only get once a year. So I'm teasing. Let's examine the relationship between the head and in the heart. What the head decides to give will, in the last analysis, be determined by the heart. I think it's safe to say, but regardless, if it's 
to be a means of grace, friends, it's got to involve your heart. Paul says in in verse 7 of chapter 9, each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart. That's the center of who he is. Not in the fleshly things that pump blood into your body, no, nor even the seed of emotions as we consider the heart, but in his soul, in the very center of who he is. Generosity must flow out of his primary allegiance. So let me ask you this. How then are we to conceive sowing bountifully? What does that look like? Because here's what we want, friends, don't we? Give me a number, pastor. Just, just give me whatever, whatever it is you think I ought to give. What is it? That's what we're tempted to do here, isn't it? What's the number so I know when I'm actually sowing bountifully? Give me the percentage. Friends, of course, much to our dismay, Paul nor any of the other New Testament writers offers us a quantity, percentage, or otherwise. Now listen, according to the New Testament... We do see Jesus telling the rich young ruler to give away all that he has. We also hear Jesus commending the widow for giving her last two copper coins. So if you absolutely have to have a percentage from the New Testament, I'll give you one, 100%. Now, I don't really recommend that. But those are the percentages we see in the New Testament. Listen, we know most of us have been taught, right, one time or another, that we are to tithe 10%. And that's bountiful. It is. But friends, that's, that's not taught anywhere in the New Testament. It's clearly a stipulation of the old covenant, which we are no longer under. I know it's convenient. In fact, it's a great starting point, And it's fine to use that as a starting point. But that's not what Paul's after here. Paul's not after your 10% here. What Paul is exhorting from them, it cannot even be quantified because it's a matter of your heart. The quality is what he's concerned with. Look at verse 7 again. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giving. Christian giving is of this quality Paul makes it sound like, by the way, that the Macedonians, those who were in deep poverty, hounded him down for the opportunity to give. Paul, we we don't have much, but can we please give? In the midst of their poverty, of their trial and affliction, joy sprang up into generosity. And notice that. They give joyfully. Then they give anxiously. (laughs) Then they give in fear. It was a joy to them to be able to give. That is bountiful. You just can't quantify it. There's the willing, freely given gift that pleases God because God loves a cheerful giver. I mean, think about it. (laughs) How could it be any other way in light of the gospel? Now listen, I, I don't want anyone to hear me say from the pulpit that we are not under the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. We absolutely are under their authority. But we are not under the old covenant anymore as a stipulation that must be kept. Yet every verse from the Old Testament speaks to us authoritatively. So the principle of giving to God from the very first of what we receive still abides and is true. And that's the point. Friends, we should be giving God what's first, not what's last. And isn't it the case? We get to the end of the week. What do I got left over? Okay, there you go. You can have it. Take it. 
No, it comes off the very top. That's the basic principle of thanksgiving. You recognize that what you have has come from God and not you. So you immediately offer it up as a sacrifice and a gift. It's a part of giving thanks. Really, you want to know what this picture is? I, I, I don't have time really to take us there, but Exodus 35 through 36, there's this picture of the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. They've been redeemed out of Egypt, so they come out and Moses has explained to them what they're all about to do. He tells all the people to, to bring him things so they can build a tabernacle and what God has told them to build. And so there is this response, and it's a beautiful refrain that's repeated throughout the whole thing. They They did according to their heart. And so the people just kept bringing and bringing and bringing. And eventually Moses had to say, stop it, stop it. And that was because they were brought out of physical slavery in Egypt. Friends, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sin and have been made alive in Christ. How much more ought we ought to give? How much more ought we ought to be saying, stop, stop, that's too much, stop. Friends, we're under the new covenant of grace. We've been redeemed from sin. Eternal punishment we deserved. How much more ought generosity to flow from us? And friends, at the end of the day, it's a heart thing. Paul said, he each needs to decide in their heart how they're going to give. I'll move quickly here through this last part. Then Paul helps them in verse 8, 10 respond in that way. He desires in giving bountifully by reminding them, by the way, God's able and faithful to do this. Verse 8. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Where's the lack there? There, There's no lack there. I love how that verse starts in the Greek, by the way. God is able. Actually, it starts, the able God. Able he is. That sounds like Yoda, right? But that's, that's what the Greek does. It's the emphasis. He is able. Why are you like Ananias and Sapphira tucking things back like God can't provide? And he is faithful. He's the one who supplies the seed to the sower. He's the supplies to the, the, the food to the birds in the air. He's the one who clothes the, the fields with the lilies. That is who our God is. He's able and faithful. And where these truths, by the way, are known and believed, the certainty of God's ability and faithfulness, there, friends, you will find a generous people. Listen, all of this is about the heart, but it doesn't mean that our heads aren't involved, okay? There are, are certain principles that, that, that Paul even outlines here to, that are here to guide the way we think about giving, So for instance, Paul, in his letter to Corinthians, he reveals that giving is conducted with careful forward planning. This is not something Paul's doing on a whim. He's been carefully planning this for some time. He's been telling them, Corinthians, say, put away for the first of each week. It's been carefully thought out. Our giving corporately needs to be done in in, in propriety and and commitment to be above reproach in how we handle that which is received here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables. Absolutely. But friends, there is a relationship between the head and your heart. The Bible is clear. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There's one more relationship. It's really quick, brief. I know, we're running long today. A relationship between giving and all other means of grace. There's a relationship between giving and all other means of grace. Listen, both are ordinary and that there's nothing extraordinary about them. Just, just like the week-by-week week faithfulness and the giving to the Christian ministry, 
giving within the church and the corporate body. It's a means of grace. The proclamation of the word, the hearing of the word, responding to the word in song, prayer, even suffering as a means of grace, they do not happen apart from faith. The scriptures don't teach that. In other words, friends, two people sitting side by side, both giving generously, one person does so with little regard to Christ or the grace that is his through Christ, and the other person joyfully and generously gives as an act of worship. One receives grace, the other receives nada. That's what it means. It means some of us are sitting right now and you are here, but it doesn't mean you're receiving grace. It doesn't. Every means of grace must be engaged in by faith or it does us no good. God gives ordinary means of grace by which he strengthens his people, but you don't participate and you won't grow. Our Father has lovingly given us all things that we might sow and reap in the grace he desires to give. So we must be a people who sow bountifully in every area of life. And and the conclusion here is just in the last three or four verses of this passage. This entire passage actually has been bracketed by grace. That's where Paul starts. In chapter 8 and 9, these two go together here. Look what he says at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. And then he ends in the last part of chapter 9, the last three verses. Because of the proof given of the, by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. The picture that's painted is that God has poured out his grace upon you. Like the Niagara Falls has just showered you with grace. And as that grace pours through his people and to others, we should shoot it out like a fire hydrant. So it just fills up not just individuals, but churches. And all of this grace is working toward what? Thanksgiving to God. All his praise. Sole Deo Gloria. That is where Paul ends once again. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Lord, I'm, I'm praying to our Father that we would be a church that would be known for our generosity, that even in our deep poverty, if we have that, because it's united to our joy, we would overflow in the wealth of our liberality. Church, let's pray together. Father, Lord, how I long individually for us corporately to participate in this act of grace. Lord, being a a giving people, Lord, who meets one another in the needs that we have, with the surplus we have, Father, we who give generously and sacrificially even in our poverty, Father, who are so overcome by the joy of the gospel, the joy of having all things in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we hunt down opportunities to be generous. Father, would you help us as a church to be mindful, to be sensitive to the needs of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Father, we are materially rich. We are materially rich people. So, Father, as we look at our brothers and sisters in other places, 
Would you help us be sensitive to, search out opportunities to be generous towards them? Father, that our generosity might cause them to long for you and to pray for us and all of us to give thanks together that we all might shout out and sing, thanks be to God for his inexpressible, his indescribable gift. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and we pray this in his precious name. Amen.